You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. The problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. I love that quote. I'm a sucker for a good quote. You know that. But the reason I love that one so much is it bears so closely to my own experience. I'm not sure if you could resonate that or with that at all. The problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. There's a lot of things about the Christian life that are actually pretty easy, I think, like showing up for church. That's pretty easy. Singing the songs, you know, standing and kind of being there in the moment. Yeah, that's pretty easy. Sometimes, you know, giving your money and just drop it in the thing. Sometimes that's easy, right? But what about loving others after they hurt you? That's hard. What about forgiving others when they don't deserve it? That's really hard. Like all of Ephesians chapter 5, where we've been, flee sexual immorality, live in the light, don't run to these idols. When you start talking like that, life just gets interesting, doesn't it? Here's the point. I think there is a massive gap between church, just Christianity, and actually living for Christ. There's a big difference between Jesus just kind of being there, and Jesus being Lord of your life. And you only know that gap when you really start leaning into it. The problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. So this morning, we're wrapping up our 13-week summer series through Ephesians, and maybe this is just a bit of like sanctified imagination here, but with six chapters behind them, Paul's readers are probably asking themselves, okay, fine, following Jesus, I'm in, I want to grow in Christ, should I expect opposition? And just to Disney fast pass you on this, yes, you should. So let me be your pastor for just a second here on this. When the stuff of life hits the fan, I want you to be able to push through the difficult stuff because Jesus is so, so worth it. The only question is, how? And that's where we're headed this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 10. You could turn there, flip there, or scroll there. Paul is going to coach this Ephesian church on how to make it through the tough stuff. Because life is tough, and we shouldn't pretend that it isn't. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. We're going to get a really clear picture of our enemy. And then we're going to wrap up, as Paul does, by directing us back to the Jesus who makes it all worth it. Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 10, we're going to find that this text we're going to be in is anchored in three verbs. And these verbs are kind of the key to unlocking this text. I'm going to take one at a time. Let's just start in verse 10. Paul starts off, finally, what a good pastor, what a good signal. He's like, I'm almost done, I'm almost done. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
That verb, be strong, is actually a really weird verb in Greek. It's a passive verb. Passive verbs are different than active verbs because passive verbs are the mean, means that you aren't the one doing the acting. Passive, you receive the action being done. Here's what this looks like. An active verb says, open the door. A passive verb says, let the door be opened. Active verb says, catch the ball, catch it. A passive verb says, let the ball be caught. They're really weird verbs. They're really awkward. We don't have a lot of them in English, but they're really important. Here's why. We like the be strong part, don't we? Be strong. Suck it up, buttercup. Cowboy up for Jesus. Let's go. Here's the catch, though. That's not what he's saying. This isn't knuckle down, just hang tough, dig in, hold your ground. That's not what he's saying. What's he saying? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We might say, be strong in his strength. We might say, take his strength as your own. We might say, let him be strong for you. First three months of this year, I know a lot of you know this, I was out on um, a bit of a sabbatical for January, February, and March. And I want to tell you a story of something that happened during sabbatical for me as it relates to this text. Um, Last three years, of course, have been tough for a lot of us. They were tough, you know, for our church. They were tough for everybody trying to find their way in faith through all of the stuff of the last three years. And I just got really tired of being strong or trying to be strong. Maybe is the better way of saying it. And so early in my sabbatical, I took a four-day silent retreat. So no, nothing coming in and nothing coming out, which is a small miracle this way. <laughs> But like for me, those are like downshifting from like fifth gear to first gear. Like it just forces me to stop real quick. So a four-day silent retreat. A friend of mine has a cabin that he let me borrow for, for the retreat. And um, it was like day number two I was there. And I was, um, I'm not sure if you do much with, with like prayer positions. I, I do sometimes. And um, on the wall of this like stone fireplace, there's a cross up on the wall. And um, so I was like, I think I was about two and a half days in maybe. And I was laying on the floor, just prostrate in front of this cross, and just praying and just saying, like, Lord, I am so tired. Lord, I am so tired. I'm so tired of trying to be strong. I'm so tired of having all the right answers. I'm so tired. Of... Anybody else resonate with this in your life? Okay. And I felt the Lord say in my spirit at that moment, he asked me, Brandon, why won't you let me be good to you? And I'm like, oh, that's where we're going. <laughs> oh, wasn't ready for that one. Why won't you let me be good to you? The reason I bring that up is I think there's a lot of us who are tired of trying to be strong in our own strength. And we need to remember what it is like for the Lord to be good to us. We need to let him be strong for us. Stop trying to fix everything. Stop trying to be strong. How about we let him be strong for us? And so before we go any further in this text, here's something we've got to know about spiritual warfare and about how tough it is in the Christian life. The victory isn't ours because the battle isn't ours because the strength isn't ours. The victory isn't ours because the battle isn't ours because the strength isn't ours. Brandon Marshall can do absolutely nothing of consequence on my own. 
That's an incredibly sobering, humbling, dependence-inducing thought that you are not the source of your own spiritual strength. You will only ever be as victorious for Jesus as you are close to Jesus. The victory isn't ours because the battle isn't ours because the strength isn't ours. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. But for now, here's why this verb matters, this be strong, and why we've got to get it right. I'm convinced that the reason why so many of us lose the battle before the battle even starts is because we try to start the battle in our own strength. That's a personal confession. I do it all the time. I go with my gut, which is so often so wrong. I work when I should wait. I strategize when I should sit. I problem solve when I should pray. The first move facing the difficulties of the Christian life is not a bold statement saying, Lord, here's what I think we should do. Here's what I want to do. It's a brave question saying, Lord, can you please help me? So that's this first verb in this text. Be strong. Second command shows up in verse 11, though. He says, be strong. And then here's verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. And then his purpose clause, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy or the devil. Then he flies a little bit lower in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We'll come back to that. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay. <laughs> We're going to take a look at this in a couple minutes, a little bit closer. But for now, here's what Paul wants us to see. We have an enemy, and he's really smart. <laughs> And if we underestimate the ability of our enemy, we will not see the need for armor. And so if we're going to stay the course, we need to armor up. So again, let's focus on the word he says, put on, put on. Now this word means exactly what you think it means. It's a clothing word. It means to put on, like to get dressed. In this case, dressing for battle. But there's something unexpected about this verb. If the first one, be strong, is passive, be strong means let God be strong for you, this one is a little bit different. It's in the middle voice. Now, this one just means that we do it together. This is something that I do, and it's something that's being done for me. Here's the way to illustrate this. When I get home every day from work, I go find Mandy, and I give her a hug. Why? It's just what we do. You ever had a one-sided hug? The most awkward thing ever? You can't have a one-sided hug. By definition, a hug is two-sided. That's a middle voice. I give this and I'm being given this. That's what Paul's talking about here. This is something I do, but it's also something Jesus is doing for me. Do it and let it be done for you. Sure, I'm putting it on, but Jesus wants to put it on me. Or, if this helps, I'm making myself ready, but there's somebody else making sure everything fits. Here's Paul's point. The real art behind staying the course in the Christian life, navigating through the tough stuff, and living in victory over all these rulers, authorities, and powers, and forces of evil, is that my armoring is not a one-sided thing. Spiritual warfare is a relational thing. And we've got to get that. This isn't me just sucking it up. This is a relational thing. You will only ever be as strong in Jesus as you are connected to Jesus. And so what I want to do for about 10 or 15 minutes, I want to pull off and I want to talk about spiritual warfare. And I know this is not a fun topic. It's not easy to talk about. 
but I know it's a question that a lot of people have, and we need to lay some ground rules for what we're actually dealing with here. Paul's talking about some dark stuff, and it's worth popping the hood to see what's going on. So, eight principles of understanding spiritual warfare. He mentions these authorities and rulers and powers and forces of evil, and he's talking about the darkness, and we're like, eh. So we got to get in that to understand what he's really talking about. Eight principles for understanding spiritual warfare. Here you go. Principle number one. There is a spiritual realm that is just as real as the physical realm. At the tail end of verse 12, Paul uses the phrase, the heavenly places. Here's what he has in mind. As part of God's creation, there are beings and realities that we don't see that are just as real as beings and realities that we do see. And if you look in God's word, there are times when the veil between the two drops. In God's word, people have encounters with supernatural beings. This doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And so the spiritual realm can be discerned, even felt sometimes. It's invisible to our mortal eyes, but it's very, very real. And in this spiritual realm, there are angels, beings created by God, who exist in service to him, but there are also those that are in rebellion against him. And Paul lists them here in something like a hierarchy. You caught that. He says, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and forces of evil. Well, what are those? And what are they about? Principle number two. The evil forces in that realm are led by a fallen angel named Lucifer. Now, we're going to get dark for a minute, but sit tight. Lucifer is talked about in two places in God's word. The first one is in Ezekiel chapter 28. This is very Old Testament. Here's what Ezekiel says, speaking about Satan. This is Ezekiel 28, verse 14. It says, You are anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You are on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you are filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Definitely a spooky kind of a picture. Not something we see all the time. The second picture is in Isaiah chapter 14, and then we'll talk about what these mean in just a second. Isaiah 14, verse 12, depicts a very similar complementary picture of Lucifer. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll, I'll be above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So a couple observations just about these two texts. First, Satan is a created being. It comes from Ezekiel 28, verse 15. That's important. He's a created being. He's not God's opposite but equal. He's not divine. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's created. That means he is limited. Second observation. He was originally a high-ordered 
angel. Ezekiel says that he was a guardian cherub. As angels go, there's only one rank higher. That means that Satan was near to God. Third observation, he wasn't satisfied with what God gave him. He wanted to reach for more. He wanted God's place. And because of that, God cast him out of heaven. Fourth observation, he's beautiful. I've always found that was very interesting to me. He's beautiful. He's not Yosemite Sam with like a pitchfork. Isaiah calls him the day star, the son of the dawn. Ezekiel uses words like splendor and beauty. These en- this enemy whose schemes we're going to get into in just a second, he's not a cartoon. <laughs> he's a real being with intelligence, influence, and cunning. Well, what does he want? What is he about? Principle number three. He is fundamentally set against the purposes of God. Now, this is where things are going to get practical. Born out of his pride, he has set himself up against everything that God is about. When the gospel is preached, he is against that. Whenever Jesus' name is mentioned or spoken, he hates that. When we talk about worship, when we make much of Jesus' value, the enemy opposes that. Everything that God wants to do in this world, he wants to thwart and undo. And sometimes he uses people, sometimes he uses ideas, sometimes he twists God's word, but we've got to square with this first. Anytime there is gospel movement, it is his burning passion to stop it. It's worth stopping here for a second, because we talked about the difference between church-ianity and Christianity, (laughs) just going to church. This sounds overstated, but I'm not sure that Satan's actually concerned that you go to church. I think he's much more concerned if you're going to take the words of Christ seriously when you leave this place. If you are seeking to live every aspect of your life under the authority of Jesus, you are just as much in the crosshairs as a preacher in the pulpit. (laughs) Principle number four, and this is where the tide turns. Principle number four, he is mortally wounded and he will not recover. This is a great picture. It's a great movement in the story. This goes to Revelation chapter 12. Now, if you thought like Ezekiel and Isaiah was some trippy stuff, buckle up. This is great. As time rolls on, what Isaiah and Ezekiel saw as an angel, John, who wrote Revelation, sees as a dragon. Here's what he says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Those are crowns. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So you got a woman who's about to give birth to a son, a male king. That's interesting. But then hang on, look in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Watch what happens. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How? Don't miss this. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives, love not their lives even unto death. 
Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Guys, this is one piece we cannot miss. The battle is over. The war is won. He has already lost. He is mortally wounded. How? Verse 11, by the blood of the lamb. Tell me, church, who is that? Jesus. That's the name that sends him running. This fearsome dragon turns into a little itty-bitty grasshopper at the name of Jesus. He is mortally wounded, and he will not recover. Our Jesus has finished him. But what's with that little tack on the end, that woe to you, earth bit? Because this is where things get really practical. Principle number five, he is furiously working toward your destruction. You slide on down a couple verses in verse 17 of Revelation chapter 12. It says this. He's furiously working to your destruction. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What's that mean? I don't want to scare you, but this should sober us. This mortally wounded enemy, this dying dragon, is mad and he's on a mission. He knows his time is short. He knows what his future holds. He knows that he cannot win, but that's not stopping him from taking down as many people as he can. So in his fury, I'm going to give you a couple things. Satan wants to do five things, and these are going to come unfairly quick. They're not going to show up on the screen. I'm just going to hit them really, really quick. He wants to discourage your emotions. That's where he wants to start. He wants to take you out at the knees. He wants to discourage your emotions. He wants to distract your attention, meaning focus on anything but Jesus. You can talk about anything. I don't care. Crack in there. Mm. He wants to devalue your identity, meaning you will never step out of the old you. You can't break up with yourself. I told you. Every time you sin, he's going to hold it right back up in your face. He wants to devalue your identity. And then he wants to downplay your impact and say, you're never going to make a difference. You are chained to that old self. Who do you think you are? You're nothing. Remember, everything God wants to do in you, he wants to downplay and destroy, which leads to ver- or principle number six, and right back to Ephesians, principle number six, our present battle is with him and his army. Did you catch Paul's corrective in there? I think we need to hear it again. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Slow down long enough to really hear that. Our battle, the stuff that drives you crazy, has nothing to do with people. People are fellow targets. <laughs> kind of reframes the whole thing, doesn't it? This battle that we are currently in has nothing to do with people. This is so important. Why? Because when we are attacked, it is our natural inclination to find an attacker, like who hit me with that rock? And often our eyes find the closest, most convenient person we can as a convenient scapegoat. And Paul wants us to make sure we see the battle rightly. The problem isn't your spouse, your kids, your crazy neighbor, your coworker, whatever. They have nothing to do with it. The problem is the evil one. Now, why does the enemy want to distract us in that way? Because if he can get us to believe that they're the problem, guess who we never see? Him. If I'm content to blame that person, gosh, I never have to actually look any deeper. They're the problem. No, Paul says, not with flesh and blood. That's a pretty good tactic, isn't it? It's one that I think our enemy is 
doing really well at these days. Let's fly a little closer over this one, can we? If you find that you're very quickly, if you quickly vilify others, you find it easy to hate the other side of whatever issue, if you kind of naturally slip into this simmering anger toward people, I need to warn you, Satan already has his foot in the door of your heart. When churches fight the wrong fight, everybody loses. When Christians misdiagnose the problem, everybody loses. When God's people don't see the real enemy, everybody loses. People are never the enemy. People are fellow targets. Tell me that's not just like a game-changing truth for thinking about our world in these days, isn't it? Well, if I can't vilify, what am I supposed to do? Principle number seven. Here we go. Since our battle is spiritual, our tactics must be spiritual. Hear me. Christians are expected to do battle. We are not these like contented people who just sit around and sip tea and like wait for heaven all day. Just like contented to be like, well, life is very simple and jolly. Ha ha ha. Right? No, we're expected to do battle. But the catch is we do battle differently than the world does. We don't use anger. We don't use hate. We don't use bitterness. We don't get violent. Our weapons and our tactics are spiritual. And they're right here in Ephesians chapter 6. And you can read about them. We're going to look at them more in a minute. But a quick word picture. A Christian, this is just my imagination on this one, how I contextualize it. A Christian charging into a spiritual battle with a worldly weapon is like a knight. You know, like those medieval knights gearing up for like a jousting tournament? They get all armored up, and they look down the rail, and they see their enemy over there, and they're ready, and then they pick up their lance, which is a pool noodle. <laughs> and that feels really good, because like, hey, I got something in my arms. Like, this can work. I'm there. I'm armored up. I'm ready to go. I did something. Now, you may love your pool noodle and have the best pool noodle in the whole Walmart pool noodle bin. But at the end of the day, it ain't going to work. That's what we look like when we charge into spiritual battles with worldly weapons. Ineffectual. We're going to lose. Which leads to the last principle, and probably this is the one that is most important. Principle number eight, our enemy's ultimate intent is to undermine Jesus' ability. This principle comes out of the word schemes there in verse 11 of chapter 6. To understand it, we've got to go back to the beginning. Do you remember when humanity first met the enemy? Back in the garden? Our spiritual great-great-great-great-grandparents, they heard a whisper, they turned, they listened, and they ate. And what did he tell them? Because he's doing the same thing today. What did he say? Did God really say? Is God really good to you? Maybe, maybe he's holding out on you. Surely there's more. Do you see how like, he just invites Adam and Eve to question God's ability? He doesn't even like, really answer the question. He just asks it. He opens the door and he lets them walk right in. It's the seed of doubt that grows to distrust, that blossoms into disbelief, and then it leads to despair. Here's the crux. In the center of every sin is the subtle suggestion that Jesus is not able, that he's not able to satisfy you, that he's holding out on you, that he's not able to save you, he's not able to make you new, right? That he can't redeem your past, he can't fix your present, he can't secure your future. And God, those, those lies can be so stinking strong, can't they? Like, I don't know about you, but I hear those lies or variations of them every day because they come from the mouth of a very good liar who's had centuries of practice. But here's the funny thing, and I don't mean this to be like, dismissive, 
the enemy is really smart, and he knows how to speak to you, but he's also really dumb. He's not very creative. He's been doing the same thing for millennia. It's the same strategy. It's really boring, isn't it? And that's why sin's so frustrating. It's the same strategy. It's just like, did God really say? Did he really mean? Is that really what it is? It's the same thing over and over and over again. At the crux of every sin is the subtle suggestion that Jesus is not able. Now, what should we do with all of that? Eight principles. We're going to go back to the text. Let's go back to Paul's command, put on. This verb, put on, here's what this practically means. You and I, we need to know the truth well enough to use it. Know the truth of God's word well enough to use it. Jesus is able to satisfy you. He is able to save you. He is able to make you new. He can redeem your past. He will fix your present. He will secure your future. You can trust him because he's good. You can follow him because he's sovereign and you can worship him because he's worthy. Confessing Jesus' ability is the best weapon of spiritual warfare. And it's why we introduced the song that we did this morning, I Speak Jesus. This isn't just some mystical chant or some like mind-emptying mantra. This is inviting a real person into a real issue in my life at a real time. Knowing the truth of God well enough to use it means, in part, remembering that Jesus has already achieved a victory that can never be overturned. It's never going to be questioned. The deal is done. The score is settled. So speaking of war and victory, back to the text for the third verb, and I think a really good metaphor. (laughs) We've got be strong. That's verse 10. Be strong, passive, meaning let God do the heavy lifting. Let him be strong for you. Stop trying to be God over your life. Put on, that's verse 11, middle, meaning we do this together with God as his word works in our hearts. And then now verse 13, he says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying in all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Gosh, this is, there's, there's so, so much in here. Here's the point. God's already won the war. He's given you everything you need. But at some point, verse 13, you have got to own your own spiritual health. These verbs are interesting, and I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but I will for a second. Be strong. That's passive. Let God be strong for you. Put on. That's middle, meaning we do this thing together. This one, though, is active imperative. It means that's on you. You cannot just sit idly by and go, well, I think I'll be able to make it through the tough stuff of life. You've got to own your own spiritual health. Growth in Christ is not automatic. It doesn't happen by proxy. If you don't armor up, you're going to be vulnerable to attack. If you don't make use of the tools God's given you, guess what happens? Nothing. 
You don't grow. Three quick observations about this extended metaphor of armor. First, these six pieces of armor that he mentions, these appear in the order they would have been put on a Roman soldier. First comes truth. Did you notice that? Truth comes first. Have I submitted myself to the truth of God's word? That's a question you've got to ask yourself. Second, righteousness. If I have, I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. Third comes peace. Only righteousness given by Christ leads to lasting peace with God and man. Fourth, faith. Faith in Christ's work is what protects me from the onslaught. Fifth, salvation. Paul says, take, not pick up, because this is given to us. I love the image that this helmet of salvation, it's like it's, it's handed out right there, and all i got to do is just take it, because it's, it's, it's given to me. Sixth, the word. I think this is interesting. The only weapon of attack. Did you catch that? Do I know it well enough to use it? Another observation about this armor. Did you notice that there are no provisions for retreat? Nothing protecting my back? As if to echo Jesus' words, don't put your hand to the plow and look backward. Progress, even slow at times. But don't ever give up. Third observation, and this kind of almost goes without saying, this armor is preparatory. Put another way, the wrong time to start armoring up is when you're being attacked because it's too late at that point. Paul's urging the Ephesians to be proactive here. But now here's where things get really great. What are we supposed to do now that we're all armored up, right? You got this picture. Now that we're ready for war, now that we're ready for charge, what does this armor-clad, fearless walking metaphor do next? Back to the text, verse 18. Praying. In all times in the spirit. Don't miss this. Don't let this get past you. Don't miss the subtlety of that image. Now that you're all armored up, kneel. Not what I would have expected, but there it is. Why does a fully equipped soldier kneel? I think three reasons. To remove any sense of self-sufficiency to remember where my strength actually comes from, and then to restore a posture of complete dependence. His point is Christians fight best by falling first. I could spend the next 20 minutes talking about the value of prayer, but time doesn't permit me, so I've just got to move on. I wonder if the reason why we lose more battles than we win in the Christian life is because we just don't pray. I don't mean that to sound like a subtle jab. I mean it as a confession. I'm the same way. What should we pray for? Paul, where's the big battle? And then here he says in verse 19, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Remember where Paul is when he's writing this. He's in prison. And he's got this armored up church ready to pray for him, right? Right? And what he doesn't say is, gosh, just pray that it could go a little easier for me. Uh, just pray that, like, I could get out of here. Pray I could get back to Damascus. That'd be great. He says, look, I'm here. I'm here. And I kind of know what's coming. Just let me preach. <laughs> just let me proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Boldly proclaim that makes me kind of ask, like, is that really what I want above all? To boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. 
Paul has just a few words left, just a few drops of ink left in the well. First, the attention shifts to the messenger, someone who up until this point had probably been standing in the corner of this dimly lit first century house church. Tychicus. If you're looking for baby names, there you go. (laughs) Tychicus was likely an Ephesian, maybe among Paul's first converts there years ago. And now he's helping Paul by delivering his mail for him. Here's what he says in verse 21. He says that you may know also how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how we are and how he may encourage your hearts. What a great communal care, pastoral concern. And then come his final words of benediction to this church. He says, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace Be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And with those two ideas, peace and grace, Paul brings the letter first or all full circle, all the way back to the first chapter. Remember how he started in verse three or verse two? He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's bookended with this idea. And that last word, isn't it so striking? With love incorruptible. What's he mean by that? Great way to end a letter. What he means is you focus your affections on Christ and there's nothing that can touch you. Love incorruptible means it's not going to be taken from you. Nobody can take that thing from you. No one can mess that up. No one can rob you. You focus your eyes on Christ and Christ alone. Life starts to make a little more sense. You focus on him until everything else fades or falls into place. The problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. I'd love to know what you think about that. It's not that it has been tried and found wanting, like there's something missing out of this thing. It's just that it's difficult and left untried. So how do you get through it? I think there's one answer. It's Christ alone. The band is going to come back out in just a little bit. So if you guys want to come on. And we're going to close our morning. We're going to close this series by singing one of my favorite hymns. It's a modern hymn. And I could sing this one every week because it just lays out the gospel so clearly. It's in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. And then what? And bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And now as he stands in victory, what happens? Since curse has lost its grip on me, I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And then this is the ending part. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand until he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And so I have to ask you, 
Do you know that Christ? What are you counting on to give you hope? Here's the gospel. Every one of us deserves hell. We have sinned. You can't deny it. And we feel it more than we even can acknowledge it in our heads. And every one of us deserves hell. We're separated from God. But God loves you so much, they'd rather die than be without you. And he sent his son to say, I'm gonna cover that sin debt. I'm gonna pay that cost on my own so that my sinful people could come back home, could be called righteous. How is that possible? It's really a question of faith. You have faith in yourself, or do you have faith in Christ? Whose work are you clinging to? And if you don't know him, today's the day. Don't wait. Let this song be true of you. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Let me pray. Lord, we do ask for your help to believe that. It sounds too good to be true. That this dark world, some of the darkness we have even contributed to, some of the pain and regret we've even brought out on our own. But Lord, you would erase that. You would erase our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so we just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. We ask for your help, Lord. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that even in this moment, your spirit would work. You would call them. You would draw them to yourself. You are good. You are gracious. So we say thank you for Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.